Hey everyone! Today's Stephen King book is a mix of two great storytelling genres, Pixar and murder. In these short stories, people get killed by a toy, a smart rat, some bugs, a folksy truck, and a redhead. Today is our half-roast of Skeleton Crew, a.k.a. Coco. <laughs> I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father... And I've now decided that one of these nights when my boys haven't been well-behaved, I'm going to slip this book into the cover of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone <laughs> when it's time for a bedtime story. <laughs> and I'm David Vance. I also can't wait to read these to Kellen's kids. <laughs> Skeleton Crew is a collection of horrifying short stories by Stephen King, none of which are about skeletons. I'm even more <laughs> let down than the time I bought a ticket to see Skeleton at the Olympics. And this is The Book Pile. All right, quick reminder to please rate and review The Book Pile while you can, because as this book shows, you never know when you might be killed by sand. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie V10 said, which I'm assuming is a Roman numeral, I listen to a lot, capital letters, of podcasts, and this one is my favorite I started listening because I've heard Kellen Erskine as a comedian, and I think he's literally laugh-out-loud funny. So I expected the podcast to be funny, but I honestly didn't expect the book reviews to be as interesting and insightful as they are. And Dave... I wonder how Kellen's going to read this. <laughs> I've already knows that I can't take any compliment. Rereading it, she first says, I love Kellen, I think he's funny. Uh, did not expect this to be interesting. <laughs> At this point, I can't always tell if it's a bit or not. <laughs> it's not. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Very nice. Very kind. Finally, our next two books are The Silk Roads and the Calvin and Hobbes 10th Anniversary Book. I didn't even know they were dating. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to see me be funny but not that insightful, I'm going to be performing live at Good Nights in Raleigh, North Carolina, March 31st through April 2nd. Go to KellenErskine.com for tickets. Before we get into it, I'm, there are going to be spoilers, so we'll warn you if you're planning on reading. But also, if you never plan on reading a Stephen King book, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. You get a, a taste of, of what he's like, the good and the bad, and there's a lot of both. He's scary and funny and uh, creative and just bonkers. So, without any further ado, this is the half-roast of Skeleton Crew in four lessons. Lesson one. Even the world's greatest horror writer still needs to have really dumb characters. <laughs> All right, I haven't written horror, but I bet a big challenge is, how do you get your characters into horrifying situations over and over without them just being dumb as a post? <laughs> <laughs> One of these stories, The Raft, these four college kids swim out to a dock, and this oil monster in the water eats two of them, and the last guy and girl get cold. So he starts trying to get with her, <laughs> and she says, Ugh. what about the monster? And he says, I'll watch, I'll watch. He does not watch. <laughs> he gets, shall we say, distracted. She is immediately killed. <laughs> and he's like, uh, how unforeseeable. <laughs> There's another one called Survivor Type about this doctor turned drug dealer who's stranded on an island, and he's supposed to be so smart and streetwise. And first off, 
He hurts himself because he keeps stepping in the same hole. (laughs) (laughs) Second, he convinces himself, hey, I'm starving. Maybe I should cut off my limbs and eat them. (laughs) Somehow he's a doctor who doesn't know that your body, when it's starving, already eats itself way more efficiently (laughs) and without the risk of a huge infection. That's why starving people get so skinny. So if your limbs are still big enough to be a juicy meal, you're not starving. (laughs) Also, when he gets shipwrecked, instead of making friends with a volleyball, he just does tons of heroin. (laughs) Wilson is what he calls his syringe. So speaking of this story, uh, later in an interview, King actually said, quote, As far as short stories are concerned, I like the grisly ones the best. However, the story survivor type goes a little bit too far, even for me. (laughs) I just love that you can still talk like this. Like, (laughs) yeah, that one was pretty gross, right, everyone? (laughs) I mean, what's the deal with these stories that just keep appearing to me? I do not remember any of this. There's another one called The Reaper's Image, where this museum curator is freaking out because when he shows people this mirror, they die. And it's so low stakes because he could just not show them the mirror. (laughs) (laughs) No one's making him do the same dumb mistake. (laughs) Kellen, have you ever heard the story of the song Tear to Club Up? No. This is a a same dumb mistake story. So I learned this from Shea Serrano. 3-6 Mafia had a song called Tear to Club Up, and... Clubs would put in their contract when they performed that they couldn't play Tear to Club Up because when they did, people would literally tear up the club. Oh, no. So 3-6 Mafia <laughs> would promise not to, get paid in advance, and then their last song, they'd play Tear to Club Up and people would destroy the club and then they'd leave. <laughs> and I love that club owners kept falling for it. It's such a Charlie Brown and Lucy football moment. <laughs> <laughs> And if you like hip-hop, the book Hip-Hop and Other Things, where I heard that story, is so great. How did Charlie never just kick her in the face? (laughs) All right. Lesson two. Good endings don't matter, he said with sarcasm. (laughs) So Stephen King is so great at so many things. Building tension, sense of humor, fresh dialogue. In the 80s, he was great at writing while doing cocaine. So a lot of talents, but his batting average is low for me when it comes to endings. He does have a lot of characters in this book who go down the rabbit hole of drug addiction, and it's like, wow, he has such a good imagination. (laughs) (laughs) Remember how he said in On Writing that he was so addicted to drugs that he just does not remember writing Cujo? (laughs) Would that we were all such prolific addicts. Like, what if the Gettysburg Address was the result of a bender? (laughs) (laughs) Most people's rock-bottom story is like, I kept showing up late, so I got fired from Best Buy. (laughs) But Stephen King is like walking past Barnes & Noble doing a double take, like, hold on. Number one, a dog? A dog. That's probably why with the recent It movies, they split the book in two, and the first movie is so great, probably because it wasn't his ending. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, that really is it. And I know we talked about a bunch in the on writing episode, but it was also our second one, so it wasn't that great. So I want to just talk about it again just for like 30 seconds. Stephen King is a pantser, meaning that he writes by the seat of his pants, stream of conscience. He doesn't know. He describes it as walking through the desert and stubbing his toe on something and then digging it out to reveal a church. Like he says that he discovers his stories. He doesn't even know how they're going to end just because he's discovering, which also gives him this excuse of like, <laughs> that was a pile of crap. <laughs> Sorry, I discovered that thing. I am but a humble paleontologist. <laughs> yeah, just digging that. up dinosaurs who only become deformed at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's plotters who essentially design their whole story, at least the uh, the bones of it, and, and then write to these predetermined points. Another famous pantser is George R. R. Martin, who did the books that Game of Thrones is based on. And everyone gives Benioff and Weiss such a hard time that once they ran out of the books, they couldn't end Game of Thrones well. And it's like, prove to me that George R. R. Martin can end Game of Thrones well. <laughs> We've been waiting on book six for like 80 years. <laughs> I would love if now that George R. R. Martin has made his $170 million that book six is just a big F you like it's this massive volume and you open it up and it just says it was all a dream. <laughs> so I just wish that Stephen King knew how much endings really matter. I mean, it is much more forgivable in a short story, which is why I prefer these collections to his novels that fizzle out on page 900. But it's also just that much more apparent when you get to experience several stories side by side and consistently relive that last episode of Lost Moment where you're like, oh, even the writer didn't know what was going to happen this whole time. <laughs> so spoilers ahead for this. At the end of The Mist, which most of that story to me is is great. It's scary. It's real. But at the end of the story, the story is written uh, by the main character who is literally like writing the story in his journal. He says, quote, but you mustn't expect some neat conclusion. And to me, by the way, this is the first story in this book and a great way to introduce us to what's going to happen in a lot of the rest of these stories. <laughs> I love those excuses written into a book. The other day, the other day, I was reading Ender's Shadow, and there's a part where the main character Bean overhears a crucial, crucial conversation, and then Bean stops to think, and he's like, "That's a really big coincidence." And then he starts thinking of all the reasons why it's not a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> so this this character who's writing the mist story, he continues. My father had nothing but contempt for such stories with ambiguous endings, saying that they were nothing but cheap shots. And I was like, maybe it's not a cheap shot, but it's definitely just easy to do, <laughs> right? Not even trying to come up with something satisfying. He says, my father called them Hitchcockian endings, stories that ended in ambiguity, allowing the viewer to make up his own mind. And it's like, hold on, please don't explain to me what ambiguous means. <laughs> and also, no, like the birds is the only classic Hitchcock that ends with any sort of vagueness, which I think is, is clearly what King is hoping for, because this story, The Mist, really does end up being the birds, like if the birds were 
flying tentacly creatures with sharp body parts like have you have you seen the birds the end of it is that no i haven't the end of it is that they just sort of the birds stop attacking for a little while so they drive away and nothing is we don't know where the birds came from and we don't know how they're gonna stop them it's just over (laughs) but all the other classic hitchcock films have very definitive (laughs) endings like can you imagine how different his movies would be if they didn't if like psycho ended with well, we still don't know who's killing all those people. <laughs> or a Rear Window, if they were like, well, it still could have been three different renters who buried a body in the garden. The end. And we don't know what window he saw it out of. <laughs> yeah, it's not great when writers think an ending is open to artistic interpretation, when what it really is is boring. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And to me, the real cheap shot here is that this guy is writing the the uh, quote-unquote end of the story just while he's driving away, still having this adventure. It's like, couldn't Stephen King have waited until the guy had lived more of his life so we could just know the rest of the story? <laughs> so in another story, there are these four main characters – uh, on a raft who eventually they just get attacked one by one until they all die. It just, it just makes me feel weird for watching the whole time. <laughs> like there's no clever twist or payoff. It's just like, well, hope you enjoyed that, you perv. <laughs> there's another story about a milkman who puts weird stuff into people's milk and then it's just over. And first of all, it sounds like this is a regular thing and people are still paying him to deliver milk. So how bad is the service industry in this town? He's like putting cyanide and tarantula in people's milk jugs. And the people, first off, are still opening them. (laughs) Is it just the dumbest town and everyone's like, I think I have a lactose intolerance. (laughs) Yeah, like... What sort of monopoly does this milkman have? <laughs> Where the people are like, ah, I wish we could stop having tarantulas delivered in our milk, but capitalism just hasn't reached the Midwest yet. A lot of these stories stop being scary when you apply the slightest scrutiny. <laughs> well, that's probably a good place for me to end because this last one. Hey, just end on a terrible point. <laughs> because. <laughs> Because I did just that with this last one. So in a story with the most on-the-nose title of all time, The Man Who Would Not Shake Hands. (laughs) So what's it about? (laughs) (laughs) I'm torn on this. So It's about this guy who you find out has been cursed by this shaman so that uh, he'll kill anyone that he touches for the rest of his life. But he still insists on playing card games which is like (laughs) wouldn't you get into something like solo golf or at least tennis you know or solitaire (laughs) you don't need to play hold him (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm torn on it because from a distance like it, it sounds clever at the end this guy they find him he's shaken his own hand so that he won't harm another human ever again But on the other hand, it's like, I mean, 
did he never accidentally scratch his own nose? Like, I don't... <laughs> yeah, you're telling me no part of his body touched any other part of his body? <laughs> like, it should have been called the man who lived a long time because he had this curse, but also no balls. <laughs> <laughs> but as this is a half roast, I can't make fun of all of these because there really are some great endings. I, I just, I wish they came more often, but there really are some really satisfying endings. Not that they're all happy, but at, at least like you know, solving a mystery or tying everything together in a fun or horrific way. The ones for me that I think had the best endings were The Jaunt, Word Processor of the Gods, and The Reaper's Image. All right, lesson three. Suffering and joy are asymmetrical. I'm going to explain what I mean by describing a story in the book called The Jaunt, and I'm going to spoil the ending, so if you don't want that, skip ahead a couple minutes. In the story, there's this technology that can teleport you instantly. But you have to go through it while you're unconscious, which they found out in a very fun way. <laughs> First, they, they tested it on mice, and all the mice died unless they were sedated for the trip. Then they tested it on a conscious human, this guy who was on death row, which I think the best argument for keeping the death penalty is all the cool story ideas about the government cutting a deal with a convict. <laughs> I don't want to lose that. Anyway, this guy teleports and he lands on the other side with white hair and he says, it's eternity in there. And then he dies. And they realize that if you're awake, even though the trip only takes a fraction of a second, you experience it as hundreds or thousands or maybe even a billion years, just trapped in your own mind forever. <laughs> and my, my screen time tracker can tell you, I don't like being trapped in my own mind for one minute. <laughs> so then this other guy uses the teleport to murder his wife, but he destroys the exit so there's nowhere for her to come out. And it says, this raised the terrible specter of the woman still sentient, screaming in limbo forever. Kind of a Westboro Baptist theology. Anyway. The, <laughs> the, the, I was just going to say, that is like one of the worst versions of hell I've ever heard of. Yeah. Just this inescapable, eternal consciousness. If that ever happened to me, I would hope I had memorized a couple episodes of Community. <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying? I think I cut you off. Th that was it. Just like incapable of of doing anything essentially like being buried up to your chin in sand yeah for a trillion zillion years yeah <laughs> unable to die yeah just that, that's honestly <laughs> when people talk about uploading their consciousness i'm like you know in my current form no one can torture me forever oh while keeping me alive <laughs> what am i gonna do if they try that to my uploaded consciousness push them <laughs> it's just there are way too many opportunities for that to go awry that technology right. like if i i don't know how many thumb drives i've lost i can't imagine <laughs> when it actually contains the molecules of your thumb <laughs> yeah <laughs> think of if they lose your brain drive <laughs> like a human life that's what i mean like instead of worst case scenario right now is the urn on the mantle that gets knocked off by the housekeeper and crashes to the floor but with that technology you would be able to like accidentally oh, i uploaded great grandmother to the fridge again you know it's like <laughs> 
It's the worst form of reincarnation. Right. <laughs> Can you imagine dying, seeing the light, and then waking up as a Roomba? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would do to punish my enemies. <laughs> I would make them clean up their own ashes. <laughs> that is the worst version of the circle of life I've ever heard. <laughs> now you're a mindless drone who will inhale their own. <laughs> it's the circle of. <laughs> Everything the Roomba can reach. <laughs> but what about that shadowy place? No, those are the stairs. <laughs> so speaking of troubled father-son relationships, <laughs> the final scene in this short story is a 12-year-old boy who teleports awake, comes out insane with yellow eyes and white hair, and blinds himself screaming as his parents watch. And it's so horrifying. But I also bet another parent there was like, oh, yeah, probably too much screen time. <laughs> now, I, I tell this story because, one, I just kept thinking about the story for days afterward. But two, if you think of the worst thing that can happen to you and the best thing that can happen to you, the worst thing is so much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine you're one of those people who becomes <laughs> conscious during surgery and you can't move and you just feel everything for an hour. Mm -hmm. Tell me an hour-long good experience that would make the same impact on you. <laughs> it's not Disneyland. <laughs> it's not serving others. Although, I, love the, I just love the idea of someone coming off of the new Star Wars ride and someone's like, how was it? And the other guy's like, the opposite of conscious surgery. <laughs> Equally good. <laughs> I've just been thinking lately about how there doesn't seem to be a speed limit on suffering. Mm -hmm. There's a scene in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold where a guy is describing being tortured, and he says, You say to yourself, either I shall faint or I shall grow to bear the pain. And the pain just increases, like a violinist going up the E string. You think it can't get any higher, and it does. Ugh. You're listening to The Book Pile, a comedy <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I'm obviously a little bit joking about this, but there is that concept in psychology of loss aversion, sort of that idea that we feel losses much more deeply than gains. Mm -hmm. I have to assume that from an evolutionary standpoint, the worst thing that can happen to you is so much worse than the best thing that can happen to you. And so we must have just evolved all these responses that make us feel that worst thing is horrible. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. I have brought it up before on the podcast. There's been no scenario in the history of the internet where someone has said, oh man, I read this hurtful comment about myself, but it's okay because I read four positive ones after that. <laughs> in fact, some people read the positive ones and <laughs> deem them hurtful. <laughs> I I can hear you, Dave. I hate the phrase, <laughs> sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Because it's like, first of all, has anyone said anything mean to you? <laughs> it does hurt. And second of all, bones heal. <laughs> all right. Lesson four. Don't hitchhike with a bag of dead animals. <laughs> So, a lesson we can all learn. <laughs> King 
He does have a sense of humor, which can make even his duller stories more fun to read. And it's something that we've mentioned is completely lacking in other well-written novels like Dune or 1984. But I guess 1984 is actually, if you read it from a slightly different angle, it it is hilarious. (laughs) If you hate freedom. (laughs) (laughs) So in the jot, there's this part in the story where a scientist has just finished some experiments teleporting rodents and he's trying to hitchhike across town. By the way, imagine hitchhiking when you have a PhD (laughs) in something other than drama. (laughs) The first car that stops for this hitchhiking scientist, the driver asks him what's in the bag he's holding and the scientist says, dead mice. And that's already like funny in a dark (laughs) way. But then I love that the King's follow-up to this moment is just When the second car pulled up, he told the driver it was sandwiches. (laughs) (laughs) What if he calls your bluff and asks for one? (laughs) (laughs) He's just a bad liar. He's like, oh, you're not going to want these. These are dead mouse sandwiches. By the way, though, this is why I've never picked up a hitchhiker, because this is exactly the conversation that I imagine, where I open the door and the guy holds up something and he's like, it's sandwiches. Can I have a ride? I'm a scientist. (laughs) I invented a teleport. (laughs) So why are you hitchhiking? Well, I mean, it's not perfect. He (laughs) flings the bag. (laughs) (laughs) So a couple other shorter fun moments. At one point when everyone is huddled down and scared in a grocery store in the mist, he just says, Norton's face was like old cheese. And I think it means like wrinkled and sweaty. I'm still not sure what it means. It just made me laugh. Delicious. At another point, he's describing a demonic toy, the classic little monkey with symbols. <laughs> and he says it was, quote, ready to strike up a band from hell. In that one where the toy monkey keeps leading to all these deaths, I liked imagining that it exists in the Toy Story universe and is just a very clumsy toy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. And if (laughs) now I'm imagining this crossover universe of Toy Story and Stephen King, where this monkey goes up to people who are ready to go on the jaunt, and he crashes his cymbals to wake them up (laughs) right before it happens. And then the monkey's like, to infinity and beyond. And another part during that raft story, when someone is getting attacked, another one of the characters, Randy, uh, King just writes, quote, Randy screamed and screamed. And then for variety, he screamed some more. It's just such an odd place for humor. Like, it's not even dark humor. It's just so (laughs) random. It's like the rest of the story isn't funny. It's just these people slowly like being disintegrated by this lake blob thing. Like imagine you're watching Schindler's List and two and a half hours in, there's just a single moment with a whoopee cushion. <laughs> and that is just right back to melancholy and horror. 
This to me was a funny and fun observation. Again, in the grocery store of where a lot of the mist takes place, he says, We met in the corner formed by the beer cooler, the storage doors, and the left end of the meat case where Mr. McVeigh seems to always put the stuff that no one wants. And I love this because like, I do a lot of observational comedy, and I love a good reference like this that no one has really talked about yet, but we all know what this strange shelf is yeah. in every store like you know exactly what he's talking about uh, you know you always see that when you're looking for the bathroom or something in the grocery store so i think that's a great observation but then he really takes a left turn to something i like can't relate to at all because he goes the one with sweetbreads and again i laughed out loud at that because I think that is what's on that shelf. It's like strawberry stuff, cheesecake dinner rolls. You know, it's always like these bizarre hostess experiments. But then he continues with, and you know, scotch eggs and sheep's brains. It's like, wait, I don't think I've seen this shelf. But again, I don't live in Maine. Given that the whole book happens on the eastern seaboard, at the end of it, you never want to move to Maine. <laughs> the other author I think of who writes about living in Maine a lot is E.B. White. <laughs> and so I love that his stories are like, what if there were a friendly spider or a friendly mouse? <laughs> and Stephen King's like, what if either of those things killed people? <laughs> All right, random facts. So Kellen mentioned his story, Word Processor of the Gods. And the basic story is a writer realizes whatever he types on his typewriter comes true. And what I love about the story is that usually this kind of story has like unintended consequences or an ironic twist. But in this one, he just wishes for a better wife and son and gets them and he's happy. No lesson. <laughs> it just happens and he's good. The end. <laughs> so this... This story collection spans works across 17 years of King's career. But The Reaper's Image, which I already men mentioned, was like a fun little spooky tale. It was King's second ever published work. He wrote it when he was 18. Wow. So I hope you feel real clever <laughs> making fun of a teenager's story. I have no problem dunking on a teenager's writing. <laughs> That's basically my whole experience with Aragon. <laughs> the following line is an example of why Stephen King is the best at horror. This character tells a joke, and it says, He thought they would laugh at that, but no one did. Not even Deke. <laughs> <laughs> the not even Deke just makes it feel like the lowest you could sink to. <laughs> So, not to beat a dead plot horse, but I just can't get enough of how Stephen King isn't into it. Here's a quote from him. He says, Plot is, I think, the good writer's last resort and the dullard's first choice. But it's like, I, I think it's just an excuse to write with abandon, which is totally fine <laughs> if that's your thing. I just think it's an excuse to not have to put too much thought in it, which is totally fine with me if that's your thing. Like, I enjoy plenty of his writing. But it's crazy that this quote is from On Writing. And you can't, in the same book, both call a plotter a dullard 
but then also <laughs> praised J.K. Rowling at least I seven know. times. I know. Who created the most satisfying book series of all time because she planned it out. <laughs> yeah, she genuinely had like seven years between idea and first book being published. But here's the thing. If I were J.K. Rowling, I wouldn't have told anyone that I planned anything. I would still just play it off as if I were the greatest <laughs> panzer of all time. Like, oh yeah, that just uh, just came to me, you know? Every day I get up and I improvise 50 pages. <laughs> no edits. <laughs> and, like, even if you're going for ambiguity... Planned ambiguity is still better. <laughs> like if if you're trying to end with a haunting message, like a No Country for Old Men story, that leaves you with like a sense of like I think I know what happens, but I also feel this sense of perpetual evil in the world. Right? There are certain books that just have this sort of a lingering message, even if everything doesn't tie yeah. up just right. Yeah, because that book planted at the very beginning the mystery of who is this country not for. <laughs> No country for men who shake hands. <laughs> but like that story just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been the same with a clean ending. But imagine like Harry Potter 6 ends with, you know, the half-blood prince could have been any of us. <laughs> One more part that was really funny to me, but also touching and so, so real there's this moment where the main character in the mist, he has this dilemma. Does he go inside this pharmacy that's been like possibly infested with creatures? There are people on the outside with weapons, like it's chaos. And this guy, a father, he says, quote, I didn't want to go inside, but I'd promised my son a comic book. And it's it's just, it's so funny and really creates more stakes, but it's just incredibly true. Like when you promise your child something, they remember that promise and there is no excuse, like no excuse. That's what's so hilarious and tender about this moment, because I know as a father that if I promised my son a comic book, he would still be mad at me, even if I was like, I couldn't get in because everyone had guns and there were real monsters in there. He would still just be like, well, you promised those weren't real. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Skeleton Crew. One, even the world's greatest horror writer still needs to have really dumb characters. Two, good endings don't matter. Three, suffering and joy are asymmetrical. Four, don't hitchhike with a bag of dead animals. And five, now you'll never enjoy a whoopee cushion again. <laughs> I'm not even sure what that means, but I'm just making this an ambiguous ending. <laughs> <laughs>